Major funding for On Point is provided by Liberty Mutual. For all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs, Liberty Mutual. Responsibility. What's your policy? From WBUR Boston, I'm Tom Ashbrook, and this is On Point. The word apocalypse, Juno Diaz reminds us, comes from the Greek, and it means to uncover, to unveil. This Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist is looking around the world and seeing a lot unveiled right now in earthquake, flood, and tsunami. This very contemporary writer is calling out like an old-fashioned prophet for us to pay attention. This hour on Point Juno Diaz on Reading Disasters. You can join the conversation. Do you feel like nature is taking a heavier toll on mankind than usual? And who do you blame? Just nature or the way we build, live, inhabit the planet? You can comment at our website, onpointradio.org, or on Twitter and Facebook at On Point Radio. Later this hour, we'll hear from the U.S. Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan's graduation address to the University of New Mexico's law school's class of 2011. But first, joining me now from New York is Juno Diaz, the celebrated Dominican-American writer. He won a Pulitzer Prize in 2008 for his novel, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow. The New Yorker magazine has hailed him as one of the 20 top writers for the 21st century. He's just published an essay in the Boston Review titled, Apocalypse, What Disasters Reveal. You can read an excerpt and link to the entire essay at our website, onpointradio.org. Juno Diaz, welcome back to On Point. Great to have you. Tom, thanks so much for having me. Wow. I mean, we are all looking around at these tornadoes and floods and, you know, weather, tsunami, earthquake, you name it. And it does feel a little, uh, you know, it makes everybody uneasy to see all this. You're turning a really tough eye on this and saying... Um, you know, we've got near apocalypse stuff going on here, and it, we need to pay attention. What's what's the vantage you're taking, the perspective you're taking on a catastrophe, Juno? You know? Well, this is kind of a very familiar one. There's nothing very new about the lens I'm taking, which is the idea that when terrible, terrible things happen to a place or a people, usually... What gets exposed are the systems and the way of doing things and the way of thinking about things which make these calamities possible or make them in some cases even worse. I mean, I think of George Lamming, the great Caribbean writer, great Caribbean writer who used the term looking over, you know, that simultaneously we might be looking at these sort of apocalypses, these terrible things that are happening in Japan or terrible earthquakes, um, but we're also we're looking over them. We're staring at them at the same time. We're like simultaneously ignoring the messages that they're giving us. You're saying, let's look in and let's look deep. You go with that Greek ver- um, uh, sort of origin, genesis of the word, uncover, unveil. James Beard wrote about uh, apocalypse uh, uh, in his book, After the End, and he said apocalypse has three kind of meanings. Walk us into those, Juno. Well, I mean, this is just wonderful. I mean, you've got to think about it. The apocalyptic mode is one of the great American modes. There's a lot of writing around it. Um, but there's this this just this wonderful three ways of looking at it that the apocalypse can be viewed. Apocalypse as a term can be viewed 
as the end, which is that is actually the end of the world, whether it's a religious sort of thing or it's a science fiction movie sort of thing. Um, it could resemble the end, which is what happens when an earthquake occurs or when a city gets wiped out uh, off the face of the planet, like what happened after Hurricane Katrina. Um, uh, or it can reveal things about the end, which, in other words, that it's at the moment that the apocalypse is happening, at the moment that the dikes, this is all the sort of infrastructure around New Orleans fails and the city becomes flooded, all sorts of information becomes available to us if we care to look. So it's apocalypse is the end, resembles the end, or reveals to us in the end. So revelation, revelatory, not by accident, maybe, that we, we read that book near the end of the Bible. Uh, you, you wrote this when Haiti was very much on your mind. We'll talk about that at some length. And then just as it, I guess you were wrapping up, maybe here comes Japan and its earthquake and tsunami and uh, what they're still trying to fend off a meltdown at the nuclear plants then. And then all the tornadoes in the south and the flood on the Mississippi. I mean, the, 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 uh, the, the calamity index has risen up to greet you here, Juno. Well, I mean, look, you know, a lot of this stuff, it's a lot of this stuff. It's, you know, it happens when it happens. We have no control over those events. But certainly um, in the case of Japan, you see an enormous and certainly in the case of Haiti, you see that there is a confluence of events and of human activity, which makes the whole problem a lot worse. I mean, tsunamis, earthquakes, these things are going to happen, but organizing the world the way we organize it certainly guarantees us that when they do happen, the level of suffering is going to be extraordinary, and our ability to respond to that suffering is going to be, in many ways, hamstrung. All right, you've got you've got people's attention in the same way that these disasters have people's attention. No question about it. David Brooks, kind of conservative writer in the New York Times, uh, you quote him writing not so long ago that the uh, catastrophes like these wash away the surface of society, the settled way things have been done, they expose underlying power structures, the injustices, the patterns of corruption, the unacknowledged inequalities. Uh, that resonates very very deeply with your perspective on this. And you start in Haiti. You take us back to that terrible January earthquake, and we're looking back more than a year now, uh, and say, you want to talk about ripping away veils and showing tough truth? Here, here it is. You, you say, here's virtually an apocalypse. Well, yeah, I mean, geez, what happened in Haiti was extraordinary. Um, I think everyone became very aware of a country which for many people was not often on their minds. Um, not only a country, but sort of a, just a, a set of lives, of millions of lives, uh, just a condition that was terrible. Um, people were, in, things in Haiti had gotten to the point, had devolved to the point where when this earthquake came along, it was literally like an enfeebled individual being run over by a train. And I think that, you know, Haiti's situation where Haiti had arrived at the moment of its rendezvous with the earthquake was something that we should never have permitted as what we would call a, a global civilization. It certainly shouldn't have been something that should have been allowed to happen um, in what is often 
horrifically called America's backyard. I just I have no sort of, you know, it, it's sort of it's comprehensible that our country, that the set of countries that make up what we would call the sort of global order, you know, allow these kind of um, just nightmarish scenarios to unfold in a place like Haiti. And I think that, you know, it was one of the things that happened with the earthquake was that suddenly every eye in the world, um, well, at least almost every eye in the world, was focused on a country which would, which had before then been, if not ignored, I think utterly erased from what I would call people's attention span. But you, you use Haiti to say, do not look at uh, many of these catastrophes and just see the hand of God or, or nature at work. You say... The, the amplitude of the disaster is very much the handiwork of humans. Well, yeah. I mean, that's like a really old thing. I mean, you see what happened when Haiti came out. A lot of incredibly conservative religious types were like, see, it's because these folks were living like X, Y, or Z. Or see, it's because of Haiti um, made a pact with the devil when it overthrew slavery. And this is like a quote. You know, and I think that it's real easy for folks to sort of slide away from responsibility, to slide away from how this and somehow indicts the way that we're living. I mean, you know, listen, it's kind of bananas that um, the sort of economic and political interactions that have determined Haiti's current conditions in many ways guaranteed that when this earthquake hit, Haiti was going to suffer just beyond um, any normal dimension. I mean, Haiti has in many ways been stripped of the sort of protective uh, organizations or the protective coatings that could have cushioned the blow. I mean, if you look at an earthquake that had a, simultaneous, had a similar effect, like the one that struck Chile, not long after, you see that there's quite a difference in the way one country suffers and the way another country suffers. And this has to do with how we are organizing or how we're allowing these states to be organized. You're critical of those who said this is the Hades paying for violently overthrowing slavery. But I've got to say, Juno, I mean, you, the depth of your condemnation of the circumstances around that disaster uh, is also so deep that it brings to mind a kind of Old Testament prophets, you know, prophet raining down thunderbolts on, on you know, uh, what uh, uh, wayward mankind. It's pretty, pretty deep and rough. Nah, come on, man. Like, how loud do you got to yell or not yell? for us to sort of think about what it means to just have a quarter of a million people die that close to us. I mean, I guess I don't know what would be called for. I don't think I was being in any way extra rough. I mean, a quarter of a million lives snuffed out like that, and how many of it could have been, how many of those lives could have been preventable? Uh, look, I, I, I'm sort of in that kind of, you know, with the kind of larger questions is... Mm. How much energy can you, one single individual, bring to these issues? I'm not alone in these sort of critiques. Mm -hmm. I think that there's been an enormous amount of writing. Um, there is a book by a colleague of mine at NYU, um, which sort of begins talking about these things, too. So I think it's, it's not an unusual sort of set of condemnations. 
I'm Tom Ashbrook. This is On Point. We're talking this hour about meltdown and apocalypse disasters from Haiti to Japan to maybe the Mississippi flood with American, uh, Dominican-American writer Juno Diaz, Pulitzer Prize winner for his terrific novel, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow. In a new essay in the Boston Review, he writes under the headline, Apocalypse, What Disasters Reveal. He says if we're willing to stare into them, look into them deeply, they reveal a lot. There's a link to the uh, essay at our website, onpointradio.org. Juno Diaz writes in his essay that uh, look look into Haiti and you may see your own future. He says a future out of a sci-fi fever dream where the super rich will live in walled up plantations of impossible privilege and the rest of us will wallow in unimaginable extremity staggering around the waist and being picked off by the hundreds of thousands by natural disasters, quote unquote, by acts of God, quote unquote, 800-423-423. Talk is our number. Do you know, give us your full thesis here. I mean, when you look into, let's take Haiti, right next door to where uh, to where you joined this planet in the Dominican Republic, and uh, you're saying in the hand of man, in the history that humans wrote here, you see the real story of this disaster, this apocalypse. Yeah, I mean, think about it. Poor Haiti. You know when. You know, it's, when you think about the Haitian communities, like impossible endurance, and sort of the way that the Haitian community has like been able to be resilient and you know to kind of maintain itself, one also has to think about the fact that you know I, I don't know if you remember the blockade um, under Bill Clinton, the, all the political strife that led to the sort of um, you know, blockading of Haiti in an attempt to force sort of political change. But, you know, that was actually something that also stripped Haiti of almost all of its really good manufacturing jobs. While we were putting this blockade up, um, you know, uh, sort of Haiti kind of lost an enormous amount of jobs, enormous amount of people's ability to support itself. Um, I think that this was one of the small little sort of triggers that kind of helped to guarantee that Haiti's poverty would be intense and that sort of you would see other elements coming into play that would make Haiti incredibly vulnerable. You go all the way um, back just, to the kind of original sin of Haitian, Haitian enslavement, you know, the huge slave population on that island and take it right on through occupation and demands for compensation by uh, by countries that had earlier enslaved Haitians. So all this left Haiti, what, with a kind of denuded country and a housing stock that was vulnerable and uh, the kind of vulnerability that led to 220,000 people dead in the aftermath of an earthquake. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a calamity. If you look at it over a large historical period, you know, from the amount of people that were sort of in Haiti's early settlement by the West, you know, the the sort of um, intense labor pool that was required to harvest sugar, that kind of uh, overabundance, that kind of overpopulation, and you follow it. Um, through the sort of Haitian liberation and the fact that Haiti in many ways to return to what would be called the normal world affairs had to indebt itself um, profoundly. I mean, Haiti kind of had all the kind of cards stacked against it. I mean, God, think about it. In the 17th and 1800s, the name of Haiti was enough to scare most people in the United States, most people in Canada, most people throughout Europe. 
and you know it got itself by you know dint of overthrowing slavery being the only country to overthrow slavery um, in this sort of systematic way, by dint of that, it got itself incredibly isolated and incredibly impoverished. I mean, Haiti sort of has been designed to fail. So how do you go from the country designed to fail to you're painting a picture here where, where in, in your kind of prophetic voice, you're saying this is the world's sci-fi fever dream future, the whole world headed toward Haiti's status. Really? How? What? Well, but I think that that's sort of the the large argument condensed into two points. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, there's a lot of points being made of what Haiti can sort of show us, what it can teach us, what happens when impoverished communities are pushed to such extremes. What is their impact on the environment? How does that impact on the environment sort of expand and deepen in some ways, um, perpetuate uh, a lot of the poverty that caused the damage, this kind of really diabolical um, cycle. And I think that one of the things that you see in Haiti is sort of all the worst case scenarios of what would happen and what happens when folks are pushed to the limit. I mean, you see a lot of times the conversation about deforestation and uh, ecological damage being one that doesn't include, uh, in at least a popular sphere, doesn't include the fact that, you know, economic forces pressing down on poor communities pushes poor communities to have to rely on stripping the land in ways that is very damaging to survive. So, so and when you have, t- t- yeah, t- when you t- have that on a large scale, mm-hmm. that creates a very, very vulnerable space for people. Well, take that thesis on up to the global scale then. The big revelation you come away from this is a kind of uh, Juno Diaz glimpses our global future, and, and it looks kind of Haitian. Why? How? What, what was the lattice work of that perspective? Well, but I mean, I think it takes a kind of a, about 20 pages to develop it. But I do think that, you know, one of the things that we see um, the way that our, the, you know, one of the things that we see is that the more we degrade our environment, the more that we pile on demands on our environment, the greater the risk that a quote-unquote natural calamity will rebound, the more the risk that a national cala- a natural calamity will rebound in catastrophic ways. So let's say that you build a whole bunch of nuclear facilities because you need this power to kind of maintain the first world economy. And you have to build this because of all the ways the politics you work. You have to build them in very vulnerable spaces because there's no sort of kind of real logical planning about where we put these. And you put them in the real vulnerable spaces where earthquakes and tsunamis can sort of affect them. And, you know, this is not an uncommon gesture. This is not an uncommon thing. The same thing. You build a lot of ridiculously bad concentrated housing because folks are really, really poor in areas that make them highly vulnerable. And I think that this is happening all over the world. I mean, I think a lot of writers are talking about this, you know, that the pressures that both the economy and the pressures that the population are placing um, mean that more and more people are being exposed to extreme sort of weather events or being exposed to sort of 
dangerously exposed to the random sort of uh, workings of the natural world. Gino and Dia- we mm. see this in Haiti, but mm. we'll see it elsewhere. Juno Diaz's new essay is uh, titled Apocalypse, What Disasters Reveal. He joins us today from New York. Juno, let's turn to our listeners. Uh, they're, they're here to respond. Mike in Lexington, Kentucky. You're on the air with Juno Diaz. Thanks for calling, Mike. What do you see? Uh, hi, Tom. Hi. Uh, I, you know, the in the year 1900, the Earth's population was 950 million, and now we're within smelling distance of 7 billion. And, you know, and he's right in this, uh, his last statement, the uh, pressures, we're, we're putting, people are putting themselves in harm's way. It, it seems like the people reproducing the, the uh, quickest are the people who can least afford to take care of their children. Um, you know, obviously, uh, with the expansion of population, he's absolutely right. We, we put ourselves in harm's way because there's nowhere else to go, no matter what happens. Whether it's uh, you know global warming, you know, you polar bears who don't live in the in a highly densely populated area that you know they watch the uh, ice sheets melting and, and they're you know they're drowning out there and it, it there's, eventually there's just nowhere to go. The pressures that we put on the natural resources are are just amazing. Mike, let let us pick it up there. You point to population, and, you know, at a certain point, everybody's somebody's living on every fault. There's so many people. We'll, we'll look at that. Let me get one more call here. John in Barrie, Vermont. John, you're on the air. Yes, gentlemen, I, I think there's a point. Uh, historically, uh, every millennium, there's uh, up, major upheavals. Uh, we just didn't have CNN at the time. A thousand years ago, when the wandering hordes of thousands of uh, the Mongols and the Picts and the Celts were savaging Europe, uh, and there was major upheavals in geography and religion, uh, and the amount of people—that's uh, you know the amount of people that has triple, quadruple—and the people um, that would rather die than move. Uh, people living along the Mississippi. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so, well, so th- this comes again and again and again through history. Let us pick that one up. Maybe th- that one first, Juno. Th- John, thank you for your call. You know, it's in, we, we have uh, apocalypse in, or something like it in every millennium or era, John says. We just didn't have CNN to see it. What do you say to that perspective, Juno? Well, you know, the like I said, the apocalyptic is kind of one of the major sort of narrative through ways of the sort of Western map. But I do think that we have to think about Think about what just happened in Japan. Do you know, I mean, do you know how close we came to a, just a calamitous sort of situation? I'm not that sure that that the risk is behind us entirely even now. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, think about how many people live in Tokyo. Had this thing gone or goes to the full limit, if the thing just melts down completely, Tokyo will have to be abandoned. Chances are that everything between it and Hawaii will be heavily irradiated. Certainly, we have been in apocalyptic fevers before, but this is one of these centuries, one of these moments where an accident in one place can sort of drive a knife through every place. 
And I think that's something that we need to take into account. There's a difference between the reactions of people and the sort of ways that people want to sort of see the doomsday and the fact that for for a first time in a, probably our history, the consequences of individual activities are utterly global. Now, Juno, you know, our first caller looks at population, says, well, of course, when you get... Six billion, seven billion people. UN says it's going maybe to 10 billion by the end of this century. You're going to have this kind of calamity occur. But you're looking at something that's more than just population and more than perhaps just cyclical upheaval. You're very specifically looking at our economic system on the planet right now. You call it a rapacious stage of capitalism. What do you mean? Well, I mean, look, population certainly is one metric to look at what's going on, the kind of pressure that we're putting on the world. I mean, we're not doing a great job of taking care of everybody we have now. So add another billion people and you wonder how in the world we're going to do that. But we also have to think about the way that inequality works. And we also have to think about who is getting what resources. Certainly 10 poor people in Haiti do not consume what one single person in Vermont does. I mean, the United States, depending on whose figures you use, uh, devours 60% of the world's resources. The United States is barely 300 million people. So I do think that we have to sort of get a more complex vision of the kind of pressures we're putting on the planet, the first world, the people who benefit from the sort of economic largesse of capitalism are probably doing far more damage than the other 4 billion people that live below. And so that one has to see this more in a complicated relationship. I think that capitalism, all of us know that it does not encourage anyone at all, anywhere to preserve the planet. You're not just calling out, though, on the world's poorest. You're saying, hey, middle class populations out there, watch out. You may have, you know sort of a Haiti scale threats to yourselves as well as these uh, walls goes up around the, the, the very, very privileged. But I think it's, it's not even, it's before Haiti, it's certainly uh, more kind of distributed than that. I think that there's very few people in the middle class anywhere who haven't felt the recent tremors uh, in this system. I mean, one of the things that's happening and a lot of economists, economists are writing about this. A lot of sort of social thinkers are writing about this is that really you're having an enormous increase in inequality, that the richer are becoming incredibly more wealthy and that the people who are suffering, the people who are being locked out are certainly the poor, but also the middle class. The fact that the rich have gotten so exorbitantly more wealthy has happened, in fact, directly on the back of the middle class. And, you know, a lot of these issues tend to be, uh, you know, people get distracted. The middle class tends to get the things waved in front of them. Oh, gay marriage. Oh, immigration. But the numbers sort of show that the real reason that the middle class is being sort of fractured and being sort of eaten alive has to do with folks that are making billions upon billions upon billions of dollars. It's the fact that the wealthy are taking the lion's share of the pizza. That's the reason the middle class has one last slice than it did before. It's not because a couple of immigrants came over the border. I mean, it's sort of the way that we're looking at this is very distracted, very disorganized, and usually not very helpful. 
So look at the revelation in the disaster and think it through. And and, and you're asking for for people to look pretty deep here. You're saying this should really upset your understanding of the status quo. Well, but I, I mean, it's it's more that I think most of us really in our hearts, somewhere inside of us, we know that things are not correct. And unfortunately, our politicians tend to feed us the answers, uh, wrong answers of why these things are not correct. I think that we don't have to upset the universe to know that this system hasn't been working for us, you know, that things aren't going the way they need to go. No one needs to go far to find a middle-class family in the United States who has been in many ways affected, who's been hurt by the sort of increase in inequality. I do think that this is just sort of good, bracing um, self-reflection on who we are and where we're going. I don't know what more will it take for folks to sort of think, hey, maybe I should think this through and think about another way of living. Do we need to lose a whole city? Mm. Lose a whole, well, they've they've been practically lost in Haiti, as you point out. and, uh, and not just there, in the uh, tsunami we saw in Asia earlier, everybody's still looking at Japan, everybody looking down the Mississippi right now as we speak. Junior Diaz, please stand by there in New York. The new essay is Apocalypse, What Disasters Reveal. I'm Tom Ashbrook. This is On Point. I'm Tom Ashbrook. This is On Point. We're talking this hour about meltdown and apocalypse, disasters from Haiti to Japan to the Mississippi with Juno Diaz, Pulitzer Prize winner for his novel, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow. A new essay in the Boston Review out from Juno Diaz is headlined Apocalypse, What Disasters Reveal. Peter, in Williamstown, Vermont, you're on the air with Juno Diaz. Thanks for calling, Peter. Yes. Hello, Tom. How are you? Very well. What do you see? Yes, I, I was just. I think I think it's interesting that we hear so much about the apocalypse lately, mm-hmm. you know, in the movies and 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 the books and with your uh, your mm-hmm. guest there. Mm-hmm. And what I've been following for the last twenty to twenty three years is uh, uh, is a uh, radio station called Family Radio in uh, California, and they use the original Greek and Hebrew text, and they use um, a method of interpretation found within the text. So they interpret the numbers and everything in context. And you may have heard about it. My, actually, my question is, has your guest heard about the, it's supposed to be this weekend, the, the 21st, that the apocalypse that they found in the scripture that would begin? This is the Herald Camping, I think, is Judgment Day is coming like in uh, in about a, less than a week, Peter, is what he's saying, actually, right? Actually, the 21st, yes. The 21st. So he, we're, we're staring straight at it, he says, and a lot, he has turned a lot of heads with this. You know, you you know, you're not alone here. Of course, there have always been people saying the end is nigh, the end is near. Now you've got a, a kind of um, biblical interpretation out in California saying it's right in front of us. Do you feel, I don't know, a kinship with these interpreters of the Bible, or are you on a totally different wavelength? You know. Well, no. I mean, I, look, I think, and I am to to answer the speaker's question. I'm very familiar with this. Um, I think that there's a difference between sort of having uh, a sort of a, millenn- a millennial belief, sort of a millenarian mm-hmm. belief system, which sort of renders our normal history into sacred history. That therefore, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, versus a more secular history where we're in the moment and 
um, until we destroy the planet, history will keep going. There's That's one way of looking at the world. I sort of don't belong to that sort of sacred sort of uh, millennial look at things, millennial look at things. I, I sort of am more using the idea of, you know, what do disasters reveal? What is the apocalyptic lens um, give us, provide us? But are you so sure again, that you don't have a millennarian streak, if, if that's not the way? I mean, I'm looking here, you know, at a at, – this is a, a recent uh, – I, I guess I'm always just like, damn, Tom, I need to take you to the, to the, to the border of Haiti and the Dominican Republic and sort of say, well, you know, it's, it's kind it of a comf- – Yeah, it's kind of a comfortable thing. Me and you were kind of chilling. We got air conditioning on. I'm sure we've eaten recently. You know, we're probably fully clothed. We're hoping, Tom, you're fully clothed. But, you know, if I take you somewhere else, suddenly it's far easier to sustain these ideas that, you know, that the world is divided between positive and negative, between gloomy and optimistic. They're realities on the ground, which are costing people's lives in the tens of thousands. I'm, of course, I'm, not, tr- yeah, I'm not trying to push you into a uh, you know positive, negative, gloomy, sunny uh, uh, kind of uh, no, formula here. No, I didn't here. think so. But, I just but what I am, but what I am doing, you raise the secular view, and here, for example. Here's the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. It says that the world will, for the first time, this is a recent news story I'm reading, for the first time in history, move from being mostly poor to mostly middle class by 2022. You know, their projection is that things are kind of on the up here. By 2030, the global middle class projected to at least double to maybe 5 million, a surge unseen since the Industrial Revolution. You, you, you're not going to go for all these people, but here's economists. Now, this is from Goldman Sachs saying this dwarfs the 19th century middle class explosion its global scale, you know, and the pace of expansion likely to pick up. You have a lot of people saying that, um, you know, there's another view here that many more people are stepping up into the middle class in this system rather than necessarily toward an apocalyptic uh, c- catastrophe future, you know. Well, you know, I mean, it sounds like a lot of the stuff they told us before – the the sort of economic crisis hit. I mean, it seems to be this. I, I, I guess I'm I'm more. I study it more in the long term. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you remember Tom the sort of ways that they were talking about home ownership in America before the crisis hit? It they was, were saying it was all like, bravo, at, bravo. But look at the numbers for the first time in mm-hmm. history. Mm-hmm. This many Americans, whether it's African American, Latino Americans, regular middle class people, owned houses. Look at the numbers now. Where is that growing now? Where are those metrics now? For me, it's sort of been kind of a I, – I take it on faith that we belong to a system that always has crises and that always sort of points to the positive and rarely points to the negative. My thing isn't that the world is eternally doomed. My thing is just that we've been through this so many times. What's going to happen new why are we so convinced that something else is going to, that this, you know, this ball is going to bounce a different way? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that the increase in global poverty is palpable. The fact that people are dying in these sort of natural disasters at levels like they've never died before has a lot to do with increased vulnerability. I think that that should be a really good index. It's not how many people have you know, stepped into the so-called middle class. But what are the numbers of folks dying under, you know, what we would call natural catastrophes? Mm. Let's go to Charlottesville, Virginia, and Bridget. Bridget, thanks for calling. You're on the air with Gino Diaz. Yes, Tom. Thank you for taking my call. Mm -hmm. I'm actually a Louisiana native 
living in Virginia, and uh, my point is that I don't want to dismiss the importance of the disasters that have occurred in Haiti, Thailand, and Japan, but to get back to our own soil, it, it seems that it's almost easier to show concern for these other disasters and ignore what are now going to be three major disasters in Louisiana in the past five years. This is our own soil. And we have a government that still refuses to take uh, any responsibility for what happened in Katrina. The U.S. government's uh, official take on this still is that the disaster of Katrina, the loss of life and the loss of property, was a result of a hurricane, of an act of God, that it was not a result of the failure of the levee system and other federal safeguards that were supposed to be in place in Louisiana. And this is just an example of what you're discussing, of facing the human side of disaster and perhaps addressing it. So what do you think is the message? You're pointing to disasters that come right onto American soil, Bridget. What, what do you think is the message here? What is the message? That who's, who's minding the store? And one of the interesting things for me, as a Louisiana native living outside of Louisiana, and so many people know that I am, I'm really amazed at the types of comments that I hear. I just heard someone earlier say, why do people even live there? You know, they're risking their lives. They should move. Well, the point is, I think one of the things that's come out from this is that Louisiana and the industry in Louisiana, the work in Louisiana is vital for all the services in the United States. There have to be people there functioning in those roles. And really all that they need are basic uh engineering uh, safeguards in place, the same thing that you have in the Netherlands, that you have in London, in other areas. We have, uh, in Louisiana, it's been shown that we have uh, just, you know, you're saying not even, even basic safeguards. You're saying we're all tied together, though, in that vulnerability. Let's mind the story. I appreciate your call, Bridget. And, and one more, if I may, Peter in East Hartford, Connecticut. Peter, you're on the air. Hi. Hi, Peter. What do you see? Hi. My remarks are about Haiti. Um, I actually went there uh, immediately following the events last January um, mm -hmm. with a church group to help out. Mm -hmm. And basically what I saw was a complete lack of fundamental understanding as to why it was even happening to them. I think that we, we can't help them with, you know, just sending people down there when it happens. It's a fundamental thing where we need to actually educate the Haitians in how to build properly, and how to, you know, get rid of their trash properly. Right now, they're just burning trash in the streets. Talk about a carbon footprint. I mean, they are, the whole country smells like burning garbage. And there's, there's plastic bottles in all the riverbeds, and that just washes out into the ocean. I mean, that's a, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of how to live with what they have. Peter, I appreciate your call. Gino Diaz, you, you hear where Peter goes when he looks at the fundamentals. Take us to your fundamentals when you you look at those scenes there and around the world. I thought what that other caller was saying about sort of mining the store is really, really important. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I kind of don't understand sort of, I guess I've not ever been the one to, you know, you don't kind of blame the, I guess I, I find it weird to blame the victim of this in the sense that um, what folks need is what governments are supposed to provide. Why if the government is sort of stripping um, the levy system of all its safeguards, then we therefore turn around and blame the person who gets drowned or the person who gets flooded out of their house instead of saying 
damn, man, isn't it the responsibility of the person who should have been minding the store? But I think natural disaster, as the, the, the caller pointed out, provides people with a carte blanche excuse not to actually have to look closely at who made the disaster sort of happen. And I think it always comes back down to that for me, you know, is that who's supposed to be minding the darn store while these things are happening? And, you know, I mean... And I, and I just to make the final point, I think that there's a real connection to the fact that in the United States, we've reached the point of sort of indifference that we would actually permit one of our most important, most culturally significant, most beautiful cities to be wiped off the face of the map. And instead of launching an enormous project to rebuild a sort of a martial, an internal martial plan to fix this wound, most folks, including our politicians, are just trying to forget about it. If that's the way we treat our own cities, you can imagine what the rest of the world thinks is going to happen. It's the way we're going to treat them when something goes down. I think we can't even take care of our own in any way that makes any sense. We've just got a minute here, you know. Part of we, we started off talking about the definition, the meaning of apocalypse. Uh, is it also that an apocalypse, the, the impact of it, of a disaster of that scale, is so great that people necessarily look and read writing on the wall, or are we capable, even in the face of apocalypse, of turning away, turning our faces away? No, I think the worse the catastrophe, the more likely we are to look away. I think that you know. Big changes, big calamities call upon us to really reevaluate. And how many of us really want to do that? I mean, how many times have we heard folks going back to the same formula? Blame the victim. And I think that's not going to be useful for any of us. Juno Diaz, you won the Pulitzer Prize for his novel, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar. Wow, his essay in the Boston Review is Apocalypse. What Disasters Reveal. There's a link at our website, onpointradio.org. Juno, thank you very much for being with us today. Welcome back to the show, and and thanks for for everything you've uh, shared today. No, Tom, thank you so much. Juno Diaz, Dominican-American writer. In a moment, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan's words of wisdom for the class of 2011. This is On Point. This graduation season, we're broadcasting excerpts from notable commencement addresses around the country. On Saturday, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan addressed the graduates of the University of New Mexico Law School in Albuquerque. It was her first public address since being sworn on to the high court last summer. Justice Kagan told the graduates to be passionate about the work they do and find a way to give back. Thomas Jefferson once wrote, There is a debt of service due from every man to his country, proportions to the bounties which nature and fortune have measured him. Or, as it was stated far earlier in the Bible, unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. Now many of you have overcome great obstacles and made great sacrifices to get to where you are today. But still in all, all of us here today are the lucky ones, the recipients of nature's bounty, the people to whom much has been given. 
And as Jefferson said so well, that simple fact imposes a duty. But it's not all about duty, and I suspect that you know this too. In the course of my career, I've known many people who have devoted substantial time to serving the public, to serving their communities in some form or another. And I can tell you this, not one of them has ever told me that they devote their time and energy to public service out of a sense of obligation. They're too busy telling me how much fun they're having. What these people talk about is joy and love, engagement and activity. They talk about personal fulfillment. And that's because they've discovered the personal rewards, the sense of professionalism and pride and simple pleasure that comes from giving back. Now, this doesn't mean any one thing in terms of a career path. Some of you will devote all your working lives to public service, whether in legal aid offices or nonprofit organizations or in government. Others of you will serve the public from within law firms and businesses by doing pro bono work, participating in bar and law reform activities, providing community service, engaging in philanthropy. But what is key and what is common is that all of you can give back. And I trust that all of you will do so. And when you do, you will discover again and again the pride and the fulfillment that flow from using the skills you've learned here to help others, to promote justice, to enhance welfare, to make a real difference in service of your own communities and in service of this great country we all share. And so, class of 2011, my parting lesson to you is really quite a simple one. Be proud of what you have done. Be passionate about what you will do. And whatever you do, wherever you do it, find a way to give back. And when you do all those things, know that everyone here, your teachers, your parents, your families, and your friends, will be tremendously proud of all that you are. I wish you the very best of luck in every future endeavor, and once again, I want to offer you my heartfelt congratulations. Happy graduation. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan speaking to graduates at the University of New Mexico Law School in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I'm Tom Ashbrook. Thanks for joining us. This is On Point. Thank you.